This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Hi, everyone. I hope you're well. You know, listeners often ask how they can help us create more stories, which is really great. The Wild is a joint production of myself and KUOW Public Radio. And you can support this vital work by checking out our show notes. And you'll find a link there about contributing small monthly amounts to my wildlife organization, Chris Morgan Wildlife, through Patreon. Become a part of the wild community and help fuel the next adventure. Thank you. Enjoy the episode. We all know this sound. A shadowy figure lurking in dark waters. At this point, our fear of it is almost instinctual. I was seven when it came out. It was terrifying. For almost 50 years, the movie Jaws has been informing the way people feel about sharks. So I I think the scene that makes me cringe probably most is just seeing some of the animatronics features. You're just kind of like, no, really, come on. Dr. Rachel Graham is a shark biologist, and she has some thoughts on Jaws. Lurching out of the sea to munch on the back deck. (sighs) Yeah, I just sigh. (laughs) Just sigh. Rachel's not just a shark biologist, but more like a shark evangelist. In the nearly 50 years since Jaws came out in 1975, it's been an uphill battle for sharks all over the world, and she's on the front line of work to change that. For the last 27 years, she's scubaed, snorkeled, and bobbed around in a little research boat in the waters of Central America on a search to find ways to protect them by first figuring out how these sharks live, and then figuring out how people can live with them, and even help shark populations grow. And there seems to be hope. So you're seeing big shifts in how people are viewing sharks now. And uh, I think people are looking at Jaws. It's still kind of a scary movie, but it's... it's, um, We've moved on. But not far enough. Sharks still face some very direct threats. They are killed for their prize fins, and they're caught in fishing nets all over the world. 99% of some populations have already been wiped out. So how do you change hearts and minds about these feared but endangered creatures nearly half a century after the movie that got us all riled up? The answer seems to be one shark and one person at a time. And Rachel's work to understand sharks, engage local fishing communities, and even instill empathy for them might have us all thinking about them in a whole new way. Oh, and spoiler alert for Jaws, the shark doesn't make it. From KUOW in Seattle, I'm Chris Morgan. Welcome to the wild.
You know, when someone comes up to you at a cocktail party and, and asks you, what do you do for work? How do you respond? I say I work with sharks. I'm a marine biologist. I work with sharks. And that usually is enough to get them to practically drop their cocktail. Rachel has a very impressive resume. Her shark work goes back more than 30 years, and it's taken her all over the world. Right now, she lives in Panama, where she studies and protects the creatures that most people want to avoid. And that is no small job. There are 540 shark species in the world, and 143 of them are endangered. It's what led her to create Mar Alliance, an organization that's focused on the health and protection of sharks and rays in the Mesoamerican reef of Central America, including countries like Belize, Guatemala, and Costa Rica. In other words, Shark Central. I met Rachel a few years ago at a wildlife film festival in Montana, of all places. Not many sharks there. She's one of those people who has this boundless, infectious energy. I watched her luring people in to learn about sharks at every opportunity. She grew up in Tunisia and remembers as a kid feeling like she might be on a different path to most children. Her mum always shared a story with Rachel about coming home from kindergarten one day. I was probably, I don't know, three and a half, four or four years old and I was crying. And uh, she said, oh no, why are you crying? What's wrong? Was it a bad day at school? And I go, oh my God, everybody's so boring. They don't want to talk about piranhas and sharks. And, and she was like, oh, oh okay. <laughs> um, right. We've got a live one here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Rachel tells me she's always sympathized with the creatures that struggle, the marginalized species, bats, snakes, reptiles of any kind. Her wildlife passion led her to study zoology at Oxford, and then as a 24-year-old, an experience that galvanized her love for these underwater predators. She was with her mum, who was working for the UN in Gaza, and Rachel found an opportunity to go for a dive in the Red Sea. It was to become her very first shark encounter. I was surrounded by grey reef sharks. Everybody else was plastered up against the wall, uh, in the dive and I was out in the blue and I was just, you know, proverbially clapping my hands underwater. I was so excited. And, you know, all of those things that people said about sharks, they're out to get you, they're going to eat you, they, you know, they're going to, all these things um, melted away when these animals were basically zipping in front of my face a foot away and they couldn't care less about me. And so my entire perception and, and knowledge of them firsthand shifted. And that was when I said, you know, I really want to work with these creatures. 25% of all shark species in the world are officially endangered. And for almost all of them, there are three main threats. First, overfishing. That's when human fishing takes too many sharks and too many fish. Removing them from the food chain means fewer fish for sharks, and it's bad for a marine ecosystem in general. Secondly, Bycatch. This is another threat. It's when sharks are caught in a fish's net unintentionally. And it happens a lot. 12 million sharks were captured this way every year in the 1990s. And third, sharks are often intentionally fished for their fins. Fishers capture the sharks, cut off their fins, and then sell them for shark fin soup, a traditional Asian delicacy. It's not easy being a shark. 
And as with most species, understanding their ecology can help conservationists like Rachel figure out the best ways to save them. Since her experience in the Red Sea in 1990, she's become a leading shark expert. In those tropical ecosystems, what, what's the role of the sharks in those types of tropical ecosystems? So, you know, sharks occupy multiple layers in the, in the food chain, and that's because you've got from very small to very large, you know, very small from the, um, from the cookie cutter shark all the way up to the largest fish in the sea, the whale shark that can reach 60 feet in, in length, and then everything in between. And a wide variety of sharks eat a wide variety of prey. So sharks are found in all five of the Earth's oceans. Wherever they're found, sharks and the health of their populations are of course tied to the health of their prey, mostly fish. But sharks eat everything from the tiniest zooplankton to big fish like the mahi-mahi. All the way up to very large marine mammals like seals for the great white. Well, yeah, right. So it is a smorgasbord of food, depending on which species you're talking about. I've got to ask you, what on earth is a cookie cutter shark? So That's new to me. Isn't that fun? So it's, it's this yeah. really stealthy, almost like a ninja shark that lives in the depths and it tends to sneak up on its prey. It really likes whales and other marine mammals, but you'll even see some um, scars on, on large fish and, uh, and sharks even. And it has a uniquely adapted way of getting its food, which is it bites into the side of the animal, it twists its head so that it can take a chunk out, and then it, it's, it swims away and gobbles it down. So when you see some what? of these little holes in the sides of, I've even seen them in the size of tuna, um, it's invariably a cookie cutter shark. I was expecting some kind of cute story about the size or shape of it, but, but no such luck. <laughs> sharks are fish, not mammals like whales. So they are cold-blooded. They don't have hair and they don't produce milk. But sharks have something in common with mammals that other fish don't when it comes to reproduction and giving birth. It's not like the regular fin fish where you have um, eggs outside the body here. It's internal fertilization, just like mammals. Um, they actually have uteruses like us. They have two instead of one. And when they're pupped, because they're called pups, when they're pupped, there's no parental care. Uh, you're on your own once you're once you straight come out away. of there straight away, and you might even not even not even not even shadowing mom. Not even shadowing mom. You might want to get away from really? large sharks as well because um, there's a <laughs> chance that you're including mom. I mean, there's uh. there's an indication that moms don't eat their own offspring. You know, their their uh, urge to to feed during that time is suppressed. However, you just never know. You just never know if you're a shark. Right after birth, as well as just trying to stay alive, sharks get straight to it, hunting for food. And they can eat a lot, depending on the species, up to 10% of their body weight every week. And young sharks are also on the menu for other predators. They're vulnerable, partly because they mature very slowly. It might take them eight to 10 years to reach maturity. A bull shark can take even longer. And if you're the largest fish in the sea, like the whale shark, it's going to take you about 25 years uh, to reach Just maturity. Just to reach maturity. Imagine your first breed. date. Your first date at 25. <laughs> I don't have to. I was a very late bloomer. Um, no, I'm kidding.
Are you allowed to have a favourite of the shark species? Um, I am, but I have to say I'm a, I'm a little bit fickle because it used to be the whale shark, and I yeah. absolutely adore them. They're just the most gentle, elegant, graceful creatures. But my God, they're not very smart, you know. Um, they've got the they've got the smallest brain to body size ratio, and so they're they're, they're just not the sharpest knife in the drawer. But at fifteen tons, no one really argues with a whale shark. Much to the chagrin of these gentle giants, Rachel's current favourite is another familiar shark character, the hammerhead. First of all, it's that just iconic head. That iconic head, highly evolved, 360-degree vision, incredible olfactory sense, just unbelievable ability to scope out where the rays are under the sand. And they can turn on a dime, and primarily because of that massively huge dorsal fin that they have. And if you see them going after their favorite food, and their favorite food are eagle rays. Oh, my goodness. They, they love eagle rays. Describe that. It's hard to picture because I can picture a hammerhead with that unusual mouth under the body. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine it being very effective at catching so, like so what you How does that work? Well, it's really, really cool because that big head of theirs also provides them with lift, almost like an airplane wing. So it keeps their head up because, you know, a lot of these sharks are negatively buoyant. And so they have to keep swimming and they have to find lift any way they can, which is how why their, their pectoral fins, which are kind of akin to our arms, are, are um, oriented in a way to provide them some extra lift. Not only is that big, flat head good for an extra bit of lift, but on the underside there are these small electrical receptors, pores that help the shark detect where rays might be. They actually sense electric currents generated by rays and other prey, even if they're hiding under the sand. And when the hammerhead locks on? It'll do a sneak attack very, very rapidly from behind and take a chunk out of one of the wings. And so there it disables the eagle ray, which at this point, it's, it's, it's kind of going around a little bit in circles at this point. And so then it sneaks up and tries to take a chunk out of the other side, the other um, disc, as we call it, for the ray, and really fully immobilizes the ray. And it might go back and have a little bit more um, lunch, uh, but... A lot of times it will just take a couple of the bites out of the the disc, kind of like ray chips, and then be on its way. The hammerhead is Rachel's favorite, not just because they're a fascinating, highly evolved creature, but because they need her help. The hammerhead has evolved over about 20 million years, and sadly, one of its most beautiful features is its most valued, their dorsal fin. Unfortunately, those are the highest price fins in the fin markets um, that are focused on getting shark fins for, fin, for a shark fin soup. Can you describe what shark finning is to us? It's the practice of bringing on a shark that is most often alive, cutting off of it, its fins while it's still alive, and then throwing its body back in the sea. And so it has no way of continuing to move and oxygenate its gills. All for a bowl of luxury soup that's a status symbol in some cultures. Add to that overfishing, 
a huge global scale problem, not just overfishing of sharks, but overfishing of just about everything else in the ecosystem too. Because right now we're hitting every level of the food chain, pretty much. We're taking out the herbivores, we're taking out the mesopredators, you know, the fish that eat the herbivorous fish. We're taking out the predators that eat those fish and then the top predators like the shark. We're, we're hitting every single level of, um, of the, the fish families, uh, the food chain. And so we're really trying to find solutions to overfishing. So sharks get hit from all sides. People catch them to fin them, catch them to eat them, catch them accidentally in nets, and people catch the fish that sharks need to survive. An estimated 73 million sharks are killed every year. And sadly, the vast majority of shark fisheries remain legal. But Rachel makes it clear, killing sharks for their fins is quite different to killing sharks for food to eat. I'll be very honest, it's uh, the mainstay for a whole range of coastal communities and a um, lot of communities need protein from the sea because they can't get it anywhere else. I understand that. Regardless, it means sharks are being killed faster than they can reproduce. And shark absence, absence of any top predator, can tell scientists like Rachel a lot. They are also canaries in the coal mine. If they're gone, then you have all kinds of potential knock-on effects with a range of other species that they predate. One day, a few years ago, Rachel was traveling when her phone buzzed with an anonymous text message. When she looked down at her phone, some photographs began to appear. And there are piles of dead sharks. Some of them are with our tags on them and everything. And I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm almost weeping. I'm many time zones away. And I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And they were taken anonymously by somebody who was very upset about this, but could not be revealed. The sharks were from one of her long-term research sites off the coast of Belize. In the photos, she could see the tags that her and her team had fitted. She knew some of the animals. Most were Caribbean reef sharks, but there were giant mako sharks and great hammerheads. It was a devastating reminder that no sharks were really safe even in Belize, where tourists come to see them. But Rachel looked at it as a way to turn things around. She rallied friends and colleagues in the shark world to spread the word about the photographs and started a campaign on social media. And having people understand what this means in terms of the changed ecology, um, also the loss of income in a place like Belize, where sharks are so valuable alive, especially to the tourism versus dead. The dead sharks came from an area in Belize where she'd been monitoring the sharks for 14 years. Even worse, a local fisherman had used Rachel's research data to learn the best places to fish for sharks in that area. She was amazed, though, because momentum for the social media campaign grew fast. Belizeans were outraged, so much so that, along with others, she gathered enough petition signatures from the public to push the government for better shark protection. The fisheries administrator was immediately called up and asked to uh, contest this in front of live TV and many other people jumped in saying this is unacceptable but the best indicator of the sea change in thinking in Belize was from Belizeans themselves who were posting in the in the different social media and all the thousands of shares basically saying this is unacceptable these are our sharks why are we letting this happen and that's when I knew that things had changed. 
It's easy to imagine how milestones like this have fueled Rachel's work. And it's why she lives and works near the tropical waters of Central America. Because here, she can tie two things together. Research on the sharks to understand where they spend their time, what they need to survive, and work with local fishing communities on ways to protect sharks. And it seems to be working. More on that after the break. At Soundside, we bring you news and conversation rooted in the Pacific Northwest. Hi, I'm Libby Denkman. I think of my job hosting Soundside as number one, asking tough questions of powerful people, the questions you KUOW listeners want answered. And two, bringing you a daily slice of the fascinating, confounding, and often goofy side of life in Washington State. Join me for Soundside at noon and 8 p.m. on KUOW or anytime on the Soundside podcast. Um, oh, hang on one second. Sorry, Chris, I forgot I had left some soup on the stove. Oh, what's that <laughs> no snapping problem. and crackling? Oh, it's my burning soup. Oh, go figure. <laughs> she travels multiple oceans, she tags large sharks, she burns her soup. Um, so, uh, where it's was I? It's good Great. to know you're just kind of a, a regular person I'm, as well, Rachel. You yeah. Know. To understand Rachel's drive, it helps to understand how she was raised. She kind of ping-ponged her way through early life. When she was four, she moved with her parents to Africa. They overlanded in a van from Germany, took a ferry, and camped along the way to make it to Tunis. You were born into adventure by the sound of things. Uh, very much. You know, my, my, my parents were very adventurous uh, folks, and, uh, uh, my, my, you know, I, so I credit a lot... To, to my parents and my mum's favourite uh, adage is impossible is not a word in our family dictionary. Rachel spent her childhood travelling around North Africa with her parents before moving to the States for school. She was a competitive rower in college, but otherwise didn't really fit into a group. A bit of a loner. So I kind of move around and I do my own thing. Um, and uh, most sharks are exactly like that, actually. In fact, uh, a lot of a lot of big female sharks kind of do their own thing. But despite her loner shark instincts, she spends a lot of time around people too. She's like a shark middleman in places where she can help solve the overfishing problem. You work a lot with, with these, uh, the fishers in their boats and, and what are you working with them to do? What, what's what's the, the goal there of working with, with uh, local fishers? So my, my feeling is that if we are going to influence any kind of change in order to secure a future for sharks and rays, you need to work with the people who are on the front lines. Rachel lives in Panama now and it's a place where she's worked hard to get to know the local fishers. She started hiring them and their boats to track and monitor sharks and now works alongside them and listens to what they're witnessing at sea. Many of them are born by the water and practically live on it each day. And so I'll ask, so tell me a little bit more about your fishery. What are you mainly fishing? What are the changes that you've seen over the years since you started fishing? And, and really try to come to an understanding of what they perceive as changes. Rachel says that the older fishers have seen a lot of changes in the sea they depend on for income. Fewer fish and fewer sharks. 
Even the youngest fishes, with a lot less time at sea, are noticing differences. These fishes have become an essential monitoring system for her team. Really, they are part of her team. So this is a, the beautiful thing of, of working with traditional fishers. It's, a, it's an exchange of information. And one of the things that I really don't like is kind of parachuting science or kind of a neo-colonialist approach towards science and, and conservation work. I really do feel that it needs to be an exchange and um, a partnership. Rachel tells me that at the core of these relationships is trust. A few years ago, in 2014, she was working with colleagues in Mexico at Playa del Carmen. A tourism industry was starting to emerge around bull sharks. They're eight, maybe ten feet long and look like a small, great white. But one fisher wasn't involved in shark tourism. He was a shark fisherman. He had a permit to fish for bull sharks and wasn't interested in changing. So the whole tourism industry was against him. He was killing the very sharks they depended upon. Rachel heard about him from some shark colleagues, so she asked them to invite him down to Belize. Why don't you bring him down as well? I think that would be great, and we can train him up, and he can just see the other side of things, and he can see that we work entirely with fishers, and we can just talk about how can we maybe come to some kind of a compromise. It just, let's, let's see how it goes. The fisher agreed to meet Rachel and the team in Belize, but then at the last minute, he changed his mind. He was afraid of reprisals from the tourism folks and shark supporters if he was to show up. So instead, in his place, he sent one of his boat captains named Jaime. Jaime came down and full of trepidation. Rachel and her crew took Jaime, the shark fisher, out on one of their small research boats. He got to participate in underwater snorkel surveys of sharks and rays. He even learned how to capture, tag, and safely release a shark. He saw a whole new side to sharks. And just as importantly, he got to build connections with the research team. They treat them like their best friends. They're still all very much connected. At the end of the week, I said, you know, I'd love to do a little video, a little video um, interview with you. Would you mind? He said, no, absolutely not. Rachel set up a video camera and started recording. Say, hey, tell me a little bit about how this week went. And he he literally got teary-eyed. And mm. I said, oh, oh, is, are you okay? And he goes, no, I was just, I'm bowled over. I thought you guys were going to yell at me. I thought you were going to condemn me because I kill sharks for a living. And he said, well, what you did was you accepted me like I am part of the family. You have shown me new techniques. And I'll be very honest, I don't want to kill sharks anymore. I'd really like to monitor them. Wow. And I would wow. like to find a way. It was. And I just, I was starting to cry. And so we were both kind of crying there on either side of the video. And, and he said, look, I, I have a family to feed. We got families to feed, but really, let's try and find a way to be able to monitor those, those bull sharks in Playa del Carmen. The experience opened Jaime's eyes. He'd learned a lot and had a great experience that made him look at sharks differently. And even better, when he got home to Mexico, he told his boss all about it and even helped him understand why the monitoring and research mattered. The main fisher who has the fishing permits, he has specifically asked if we could come and help him move into the monitoring field and uh, help him monitor the bull sharks moving forward. 
building trust one small step at a time through years of listening, engaging, is what's been key to Rachel's work for sharks. We are really, we're really seeing a change in also the attitude towards wanting to find solutions to better managing the fisheries. Messages come in almost every day from fishers that she's worked with all over the globe, telling her what they're catching and where. Her phone is constantly buzzing. And what started in Belize has been replicated now with fishers in Panama, Honduras and beyond. It's incremental, so moments of success for sharks can really fuel the movement, like what happened in late 2020 thanks to the work of Rachel and her colleagues. Gillnet fishing was completely outlawed in Belize, a huge win that will help bring back fish populations and sharks, the biggest fish in the sea. But it's still a huge challenge to ask people to love their sharks. These invisible creatures with baggage from the Jaws movie aren't exactly cute and cuddly. And it's even harder when local livelihoods depend on sharks. But Rachel has now built teams across Central America and in Europe and North America too. The growing army of shark evangelists. And the good news is, at some point soon, they're going to need a bigger boat. If you'd like to see some photos of Rachel in the field with sharks, head on over to our Instagram at The Wild Pod, and you can find me at Chris Morgan Wildlife. The Wild is inspired not just by nature, but by people who work in it, love it, protect it. The Wild is a production of KUOW in Seattle and me, Chris Morgan, with support from Wildlife Media. One way to support this vital work is through my wildlife organization, Chris Morgan Wildlife, on Patreon. There's a link in the show notes. Our producer is Matt Martin. Jim Gates is our editor. A very special thank you for their kind financial support to Jill and Scott Walker, Rose Letwin, Ellen Ferguson, Anna Kimball, John Taylor, Mark and Rebecca Wilkins, Paul Lister, Bob Yellowlees, Annie Mize, and John and Julie Hansen. Our production team includes Juan Pablo Chiquiza, April Craig, Michaela Giannotti, Cara McDermott, Tio Popescu, Darcy Riggin Schmidt, and Brendan Sweeney. Our theme music is by Michael Parker. I'm your host, Chris Morgan. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoy The Wild, tell your friends, all your friends, and reviews really help as well. Thank you, and take good care. Who would win in a fight, a bear or a shark? I've got to ask that. <laughs> I love it. And, and your bears overlap with an amazing shark, the salmon shark. So I'm right. gonna, I'm gonna I'm really gonna put it to the salmon shark because they're really I... they're cute, they've got big eyes, they can deal with really cold water, and they will take your bear down in a second. <laughs> Get your jukes up, Rachel. Absolutely. All right, fight and talk. Yeah. You know? Ding, ding, ding. Sharks oh. in the corner. Rate with Rachel. Ding, ding, ding. Chris in the other corner with his grizzlies. At Soundside, we bring you news and conversation rooted in the Pacific Northwest. Hi, I'm Libby Denkman. I think of my job hosting Soundside as number one. 
asking tough questions of powerful people, the questions you KUOW listeners want answered. And two, bringing you a daily slice of the fascinating, confounding, and often goofy side of life in Washington State. Join me for Sound Side at noon and 8 p.m. on KUOW or anytime on the Sound Side podcast.